Well, I dropped my jacket. It's too hot, sweating too much. But I do have my great black preacher hanky. So if I, if I need that, boy, those guys can preach up a storm. And a lot of them have those big hankies. So if I need it, it's right, it's right here. But open your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Revelation. We're coming near the end of this study. And it's been a wonderful study. This particular text we're doing today is, uh, was difficult for me because we're doing kind of, you would call them sermonic glimpses of this book. And as I studied and read the chapter over and over, of, or my verses 11 to 21, and saw what others said, preached, and read about it, it was like, how do I make this 20 minutes? This is impossible. So we'll do our best. Today we find ourselves in one of the most poignant and yet exhilarating descriptions, not only of the book of Revelation, but really in the entire Word of God. We have the man on the white horse. Lots have been written about that. Lots has been taught about that. But a couple of things I think we need to keep in mind as we read this text today is this. Uh, Number one, how we react to this now. How we read this now and what we think about this now is different than how we'll react to it when it actually takes place. We have a way that we are uh, told to look at things and in our sinful proclivities and sinful being, uh, we couldn't handle it, uh, looking at it like we would that day that it actually happened. So... How we react to it now is not the same as how we will react later. And two, something else to keep in mind is that when the Lord comes back and we identify who He is, it's His holiness and His justice that deserves the glory. And even though it's His people that have wronged and He's coming with them in vengeance, it's not ours. It's the Lord's vengeance of His holiness, not our holiness that deserves the glory. And we'll explain more of that as we get into the text. But let's look at it now. We're going to be reading Revelation 19, verses 1 through 21. Or excuse me, 11 through 21. Verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and one standing on it, is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Verse 13. He is clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings, And Lord of Lords. 
Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Our Father, this indeed is one of those texts that it that is a little difficult. Help us identify the writer, who is you. Help us identify your infliction that you will impose on those who oppose you. And help us learn from this text what you would have us to tonight. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> okay, so there's many places we could go with this text tonight, but we're simply going to take a look at this text under two headings. First, the identity of the writer in verses 11 through 16. And second and final, finally, we'll look at the inflictions uh, from this writer in verses 17 through 21. Well, <clears throat> it was Easter season, not Christmas, on the 13th of April, 1743, 7 p.m. at night, at the Music Hall in Dublin, Ireland. The entire city had been in a fever pitch for weeks. This music hall was going to have a concert, but not a concert like they'd ever seen before in Dublin. Because there were two superstars who were about to uh, perform at this music hall. One was the beautiful and the glamorous contra-alto by the name of Susanna Cyber. And Susanna was the darling of Europe. She was as big as any movie star, as big as any celebrity. She would have had her own reality TV show today. And she was at the time embroiled in a scandalous divorce. And it had the nation of England and Ireland in an uproar. She was the darling and involved in this scandal. And the other superstar was the top composer of the day named George Friedrich Handel. And this, in fact, was the debut of Handel's Messiah. Now, we think of it as a Christmas uh, presentation, and it is, and we love it. I love it. It's my favorite piece of music ever written. But it was debuted at Easter time in Dublin because 
Mr. Handel, being a celebrity, was unhappy with the reviews and the audience participation from his last oratorio, who he always debuted in London. So as kind of a giving them a stiff upper lip, he said, I'm going to Ireland for this one, and he did. For weeks, the management had been pleading in uh, newspapers and and flyers for the women, please, not to wear dress with hoops to this concert because they would get in the way of the crowd. And this, they say, may have been the first time there was scalping of tickets. People were trying to sell their tickets to the highest bidder. And as the story goes, the men and women in attendance were just mesmerized with with the work. It said that the tenor who first started with those piercing opening line, comfort ye, comfort my people, saith your God, people were just in tears. It was so wonderful. And then Ms. Cyber stood up for her first line and the place was hushed. And her first line, if you remember the, the, uh, the Messiah, her first line was, he was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And so moved was the Reverend Patrick Delaney that he literally leaped to his feet and cried out, woman, for this be all your sins forgiven. And don't know if that had much effect on her, but the next two weeks, he went to London after the success in Ireland. And we all know the story of what happened when King George, in attendance at that first uh, playing of the Messiah in London, when it got to that first middle section about in the hallelujah chorus when he says, King of kings, hallelujah, hallelujah, and Lord of lords. King George stood up. And it's from then on, if you ever go to the Messiah, we don't wait for King of kings and Lord of lords when we hear that sound. Others have said and others have debated that and said, well, George was a German king and he'd been sitting for two hours and when the drums and horns came, he had to stand up because he was ready for battle. I don't know how true that is, but that's the word. But there is something about those words, king of kings and lord of lords. And this is where we find it in the scripture. <clears throat> and if we think about it, and we're going to take it through the text, uh, there, there's something about a name. There's something about the name of the Word of God. Let's take a look at the text again, starting at verse 11. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. The first name we have is he's called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judge and makes war, and his eyes are like a flame of fire. Verse 13, he's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Now, we know that he is the Word in John 1.1. We talked about that a little bit this, in this morning's sermon. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we know that it's the Word of God through all things that are created. But if we, if we study the Scripture, 
there is so much more to this equation of Jesus Christ with the Word of God. And let me give you just a few examples as we identify this Word of God. In the Scriptures, Jesus Christ and the Word of God are both eternal. We see that in John chapter 8, 51 and 1 Peter 1 that says, The Word of the Lord stands forever. We quote that every time we have a sermon. Both the Word and Jesus Christ save. James 1.21, receive with meekness the engrafted Word that is able to save your soul. Both are sinless and without error. John 8, 2 Timothy chapter 3. Both created the universe. We see this in John 1, 3, where the Word created everything that was created. In Hebrews eleven three. by faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God. Both Jesus Christ and the Word of God sanctify us, 1 John 1, 7 and John 17, 17. Both are life and the givers of life in John eleven twenty five 25 and John 6, 63. Both are called the truth in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. And thy word is truth in John 17, 17. The Holy Spirit reveals both of them to us in Ephesians 2, 4 through 5 and Acts 10, 44. Luke 9, 26 says, if you're ashamed of Jesus Christ, you're also ashamed of his word. Both are an offense in 1 Peter 2, 7 and 8. Both will judge, and that's our text today, 2 Timothy 4, 1 and John 12, 48. For not only does Jesus Christ come back and judge, it's the sword that comes from his mouth that does the destruction. It's the word of God. Both have the attributes of God, Galatians 3, 8, and Romans 9. Oh, there's so much in the name. And it's at the name of Jesus Christ that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess, both in heaven and earth, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father, in Ephesians 2, 9 through, or 10 through 12, uh, 11. It's the name of the Lord that does the work. The Word speaks the existence of the world, and it's the word that ends the existence of the world, world as we know it in our passage this morning, or tonight. How important is the word of God? You can't separate them. Except listen to this text in Psalm 138.2. It's, it's one of those texts that you just, once you read it, you just say, hey, how did I ever miss that? And oh my goodness, I'll never forget that. Listen to this, Psalm 138.2. I will worship toward your holy temple and praise your name for your loving kindness and your truth. For you have magnified your word above all your name. It's at the name of Jesus Christ that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And he has magnified his word even above his own name. His name is the Word of God. Do you ever think about that? Do you ever think about when you read the Word of God who, that is eternal, you are reading about Jesus Christ, and you are reading Jesus Christ. 
He has given us this word, and we can do all we can to separate it. But this word is Christ, and Christ is his word. And we see that in our passage tonight. Look at verse, again, look at verse 13. He is clothed in a robe in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen and white and pure, were following him on white horses. And here it is, from his mouth comes a sharp sword. The sword of the Spirit is the word of God. And he will rule them with a rod iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe, on, on his thigh, he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's King of Kings. He's Lord of Lords. His name is Jesus Christ, and he is the word of God. So we've identified who the writer is. Now let's talk a little bit about his infliction. It is here, brothers and sisters, our sensibilities are aroused, and not always in a helpful way. First, let's look at the announcement from the angel. And there's nothing like it in Scripture. Verse 17, then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come gather for the great supper of God. Now, doesn't that sound familiar? When else have have people been called to gather for a great supper? And we do every week, don't we? We gather for the supper of God. And what do we do at that supper? We feast with Jesus Christ and take and eat, not literally, his body and his blood. You know, Jesus himself, you remember, he said that unless you drink my blood and eat my flesh, you will not see the kingdom of God. And they all went away sorrowful. But this is a totally different type of supper. Instead of us and others being fed by the Lord, the birds are fled, are fed by the flesh of his enemies. This is the ultimate switch. We're reminded here of our connection with the supper. There used to be an old saying that we, that I, we had in business all the time. And that was, if you were not at the dinner, you were on the plate. If you weren't invited, if you weren't important enough to be at the dinner, you know, you would be, you, you could possibly be the one that w- would be let go. Uh, a lot of truth in that. If you're not at the dinner, you may be on the plate. But they're called, verse 18, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. It's verses like this that people that don't know the Lord hate about the Bible and hate about Christianity. You know, I had a guy tell me one time, you actually believe that there is a God who to prove himself and to prove a faithfulness of one of his followers, had him take a knife and drive it into the heart of his own kid. He said, you can believe in that monster of a God, not me. 
And these are the type of verses, you know, talking about eating the flesh of kings and captains. Verse 19, and then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its, its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped the image. And these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire. I have a dear friend who I worked with in a couple different companies. I love him and he you know, claims to be a believer. And, uh, I, I have no reason to doubt that he doesn't believe in, in, in the gospel. Yet, over the last series of years, he's come up with this theory that there is no hell. And he started with, with reading uh, many people who we know and, you know, love wins and all of these kind of modern things. And he now has written this, I think it's going to be a total of three volumes trying to prove the just idiocy of a literal hell. And, you know, as I was going through seminary, he sent me the first volume and wanted me to comment and wanted me to get into a debate with him. And I just told him, Jerry, I can't, I can't do that now. I said, you know, I'll be glad to do that, and I'm going to have to get to it someday. But this thought of, again, taking us and putting us and our feelings and thoughts into things, just like that man who said to me, I couldn't believe in a monster who would, to prove himself, you need to kill your own kid, you know, my friend said to me, if I love my children and enough that I wouldn't dream of throwing one into a lake of fire that's burning, you know, are you telling me that a holy God has no problem doing that? And this is a problem that we have sometimes with the scriptures. It's the same thing with the imprecatory psalms that we read. Now, a couple of points that we want to bring by here to help us deal with this actual verbiage that's, that's rough. And that's the first thing that we want to look at is Ephesians 6, 12, and you can read along with me if you'd like. For this is our calling, brethren. Our calling is that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And when you come to a place like the imprecatory psalm, Psalm 5 and 101, and there's just many of them, when you, when you come to those, it's, it, it's easy to get stumbled on them and say, boy, I, I, I don't think I could pray that, or I don't want to pray that. And the truth is, you shouldn't want to pray that, because you are, your enemies are not unbelievers. Your enemies are not those who who march with rainbow flags, your enemies are principalities and powers against rulers and darkness of this world. We're called not to be an enemy of men, but to love them, pray for them, and woo them into the kingdom as best we can with the truth and with gentleness and love. So when we look at these verses, it's easy for us to say, and I've heard it said many times, well, yeah, we're on the white horses with him, and we're coming back, and boy, we're going to go... And we're going to do, and there may be an element of truth to that, and I think there is. Yet, us sitting perfect in heaven on a white horse is not us sitting in a pew in 2021. We're not the same people. And I was living in Florida at the time when there was just a, 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 
a, a lot of these uh, abortion clinic bombings. And literally a couple of blocks from our house was, was a, an abortion clinic, and these two Christian men, claiming to be Christian, took rifles and actually shot the doctor as he was opening up this, uh, the, the abortion clinic. And I think the, he, they killed a nurse as well. And somehow, you know, they were believing that they were avenging and being a vengeance of God. And I remember one of them, as, as clear as it today, saying, well, someday we're coming back on white horses to take care of them. We just thought we'd get to it a little early. And that's what gives Christians and Christianity a bad name. Number one, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities. Number two, it's God's name and reputation, brothers and sisters, that's at stake. We will be vindicated, yes, and God will take vengeance on those uh, who may have hurt his people, but it's not us, and it's not now. And I want to end this section here with reading uh, the entire chapter of First Thessalonians or Second Thessalonians, chapter one. One of the clearest uh, Pauline texts on the second coming, and we'll end with one of our verses in nineteen. But turn, if you will, with me to Second Thessalonians, chapter two, verse one. I'm going to turn to it too. Put this one in your mind as the clearest example of the second coming. We'll read the entire chapter. 2 Thessalonians 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as a right, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of everyone for another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith and in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you're enduring. And they were enduring persecution and affliction, but staying faithful to their Lord. Verse number five. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. You're called to pray for them and love them. God, if he will, may afflict those who afflict you. And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. That's where we are tonight in Revelation 19. This is rough stuff, brothers. When Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, verse 8, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. 
they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all those or all who have believed because of our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we will always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. That is rough going, brothers and sisters, but it's true. He is coming back with a flame of fire, and those of us perhaps in this room or those of us anywhere who have not bowed the knee to Christ, believed on him to salvation, he is coming in vengeance, and he is coming. Let's end with one more look at Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 19, verse 6. Those that had done the signs which he had deceived, those who had received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped its image, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire. That is the false prophet and the beast. And if you remember Jordan's teaching from 13, that's not necessarily two people, but those are the world and its systems. And there's two groups of people here. There's that false prophet and that beast collectively that are literally bodily alive, thrown into the lake of fire. And these were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain with the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds gorged with their flesh. Brothers and sisters, that is a day that at that day we will rejoice. On that day we will whoop and we will holler. And you say, how can you do that now? How can, how could, how can we even think that way? Some of us may have loved ones who may be part of that group. Or, uh, how, how in the world can I rejoice when I know I have loved ones that will be thrown into the lake of fire and damned for eternity? And I'll close with an illustration Uh, and it's one of the greatest sermons I've ever read, and I read it and edited it for a book that was published some years ago. And it's a sermon by Jonathan Edwards, and it's on this text and others. And the title of the sermon is The Destruction of the Wicked Contemplated by the Righteous. And he answers those same questions. And he has in beautiful Puritan form, and if you just Google that, Jonathan Edwards, Destruction of the, of, of the Wicked, Contemplated by, or what, something, you'll find the sermon and can read it. And it's brilliant in what he does. And basically he says, yeah, that's going to happen, but don't think about it now. You're called to love, you're called to suffer for the others, you're called to do whatever you can. And, and he said, 
you, the objection may come in, yes, but if I'm more holy then than now, how could I possibly rejoice in loved ones that may spend eternity apart from Christ? And he gives an illustration that I'll never forget. He talks about a, the sweetest grandmother that you could ever know. And he says, you know her on earth, and she is sweet. She wouldn't hurt a fly. She loves people. She helps people. And he said, that same grandmother, when God takes away his common grace from her, he said, she will turn into the most hateful, the most demonic being you've ever seen. And you will see her differently than you see her now. And then he ends with, brothers and sisters, it's grace. And if you have this grace, you know, rejoice. And if you don't have it, get it now. And he ends it. So how do we take this? We take it just like we do. We know what our job is today. Our job is to pray for those and love those and bear with those and, and do what we can, as Paul said, become all things to all men that by... by any means we might save them that are lost and leave the vengeance to him, but know that vengeance is coming. Let's, let's pray. <clears throat> Our Father, sober words from your word and help us not to ever take doctrines and teachings like this lightly. Help us know our place now. Help us read things like the imprecatory psalms and, and put in those principalities and powers and, and our true enemy and pray for your destruction of that enemy, but certainly, Lord, not those that are like us without grace. Help us be the ones that love the most, that bear the most, that help us to take suffering, help us to take persecution like those who have come before us. And Father, we know that it's it's the vengeance of your holiness, not ours. And Lord Jesus, we love you and look forward to that day. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, let's stand.